Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. It is good to have you with us. Before we get underway, we'd like to wish every one of you a blessed Holy Week. This is a most important time in the life of the church as we remember the passion of Jesus, his death on a cross, and his bodily resurrection from the grave. We pray that each of you will be reminded this week, in a special way, of the deep love of God for you in Christ. We are recording this episode on March the 23rd during another special week here at Beeson. This is the week of our storied biblical studies lectures, and we are honored to be hosting Dr. Christopher Seitz this year, who joins us from Wycliffe College in Toronto. Kristen, would you tell us a little bit about who Dr. Seitz is and how our listeners can hear recordings of his lectures? Yes. Hello, everyone. Today we have on the podcast Dr. Christopher Seitz. He is Senior Research Professor at Wycliffe College in Toronto, a position he has held since 2007. Before that, he served at the University of St. Andrews and before that at Yale University. He also is a two-time recipient of the Alexander von Humboldt Research Award, which is a very prestigious award. He is the author of 14 books, uh, most recently having published Convergences, Canon, and Catholicity, and another book entitled The Elder Testament, Canon, Theology, Trinity. But he is most well known around our halls as being Dr. Mark Genelette's PhD supervisor many years ago. And so we are glad to have him and his wife, Elizabeth, with us this week. We encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Divinity, to listen to these lectures that he is delivering this week. So welcome, Dr. Seitz, to the Beeson Podcast. Nice to be here with you. We always like to begin um, by getting to know you a little bit better, and I'm interested to know more about you, Dr. Seitz. I wonder if you can tell us about yourself, perhaps touching on your spiritual and academic journey. Oh, the journey's now a long journey, isn't it? I am in my uh, mid-60s, and I have a research professorship, which means I'm entitled to uh, work on book projects a bit more, I think, than most faculty. And, of course, during COVID, the teaching has been rearranged a bit. Um, my career, I, I, I took Bible courses at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, when I was an undergraduate now a ways back in time that were very constructive. That's not often the experience I think people have. And I had planned to go to law school, but I, the professor there had a big impact on me uh, personally and professionally. And he died preaching in the pulpit in Charlotte on his 65th birthday, or he was in his 60th, 65th year. And I went to the funeral. I'd never been to a funeral, I think, at that point in my life. And his widow asked me to come get some books out of his library uh, that she said, you know, he, he will want to have given you a gift. And I've got the three books. And I said, well, I'm going to law school, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do with these. But they were the textbooks we've been using in the class. G.E. Wright, Bible, Atlas, and John Bright, History of Israel. And 
And I left and she said, I would like to give you a book in addition to that. And it was a Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon. And my first thought was, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this. And my second thought was, that is a very big book to be lugging around at that age of your life where you're concerned about that with your broken down car. But it ended up being a kind of lantern under my feet, I suppose. And so I went to seminary interested in having a teaching ministry of some kind. I have my father, my grandfather, a couple brothers are all ordained parish clergy. I felt like I knew that world well, and I loved it and appreciated it, but I felt I really wanted to make a contribution to academic life. And so I got started on that. I went to seminary, went to Germany to learn German, was sort of obligatory obligatory at the time, and uh, went to Yale and worked with Brevard Childs, who had an influence on me, Uh, much like my undergrad prof personally. He's a very devout, honorable man, uh, as well as a sort of towering scholar, I think it would be fair to say, and uh, worked alongside him, then uh, studied under him, then came back and taught at Yale. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's my so that's more my professional life. I've done a lot of church work in my life. I like preaching. Those things are all hard to balance, as anybody on your faculty will know. It's kind of hard to do all these things. But I uh, I have sought to do that. I've written a small book on uh, preaching and during the uh, last uh, last words of Christ on the passion, and I gave those I gave those sermons in St Andrews. So I've had an interesting sort of balancing life. And I had some leadership also in the Anglican Communion, which consumed a lot of time at a period where that looked like it was called for. So I, at present, uh, my wife and I are living in South Carolina, though we have been in France for the last four years. I was doing, I was part-time chaplain at an Anglican church in Fontainebleau. uh, And we're now back in South Carolina. And of course, during COVID, everything has been sort of thrown up in the air. So church Sunday, Sunday morning is a challenge for everybody now. Uh, but we have some fine parishes in the in the Bluffton, Buford area. And we were able to go to church. I, I don't know what the situation is like in Alabama. Uh, but that's a little bit to get things going. Dr. Seitz, most of the listeners of this podcast are pastors and lay people in the greater Birmingham area. Uh, they know very well. Uh, many of them like to come to chapel when it's possible, but they know that right now it's not possible to have visitors uh, at our chapel services. Uh, many of our listeners like to watch chapel services and special lectures on the web, uh, but some of them will not have been able to he- see and hear what it is you've been saying to us this week. Could you give them just a little feel for the topic of this week's lectures and what it is you've been trying to do? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, which I have been teaching and I've been supervising dissertations on this from students at Wycliffe. Uh, it's an interesting that there's a great deal of interest in the book. Um, I, I was recalling that uh, in Charles's introduction to the Old Testament, he, he speaks about the great influence Ecclesiastes had on the life of the church, uh, the monastic life. Uh, also through the Middle Ages, had a big influence on Martin Luther. Um, and it always puzzled me because in, in the modern period, I think Ecclesiastes is thought of as a rather pessimistic, a despairing voice. And clearly that was not what was being heard 
Uh, and that I'm always alert to that because I think we suffer from amnesias. Uh, I think if you live closer to death and disease and plague and so forth, uh, Ecclesiastes may be a book that you want to hear, uh, a book that helps orient you away from the things of this life, uh, reminds you of the shortness of life and of the need to pay attention to the goodness of God's creation and to try to live it on the terms he set for you. And Solomon is a figure who I think I'll try to talk about this during the lectures. Um, he becomes godlike to himself and loses track of things, which is a great temptation of power and, and money and, and influence. And those are things that in the West we are blessed to enjoy and also cursed to have in a way. So we have to learn how to live responsibly uh, with a lot of richness, really, that makes us forgetful of God and other things. So I, I've taken an interest in, in the book and have been teaching it. So I thought I would try to do something along those lines uh, here with, uh, with the audience here at, at Beeson. I'm going to talk a little bit about wisdom literature in the first lecture and then turn to Ecclesiastes in the second lecture um, and those of you, you are all are pastors, and so you 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 sit at the death, you sit at the beds of dying people, and that's not something a lot of people do or know much about. And it is a challenge. It also opens one up to a a sense of the limit of life, the beauty of God in providing an eternal life for us. Uh, but these are rare experiences, particularly in our culture, we're able to push these things out of sight. And I, this morning in my sermon, I talked, to, I about lost my wife to a very serious uh, Lyme disease, it's called, and she was a patient at the NIH, and we eventually went to France to work with a specialist there. And she really only had a couple days to live. And, you know, you, you, you have to plan a funeral and think about how to get a body across the ocean and things. And these are realities that fortunately we don't deal with uh, most of us unless we have we're caregivers and so uh, undoubtedly that also has influenced my uh, my attention to the book and to some of the themes that i think come across as harsh uh, but indeed are just strong cups of black coffee about the way things go and also about uh, lessons learned. I think the man, who I will call Koheleth, he's clearly modeled on Solomon, is someone who has had to detox himself and reorient himself. And I will describe that movement as a movement from anger and bitterness toward an acceptance of mystery, the ability to not know things altogether, and that that's okay. Cast your bread upon the water. There's a way in which I think Kohalath goes through an experience that is very rich. And I think undoubtedly why the book was treasured so much through the ages. Thank you, Dr. Seitz. And just as a reminder, you can hear these lectures on our YouTube channel and also on our website, um, beastindivinity.com slash videos. Um, already, we've heard an excellent sermon from you today, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing your lectures tomorrow and Thursday, Dr. Seitz. 
Um, changing gears just a bit, I can remember many years ago as a student of Dr. Janelette in a biblical theology class learning about theological exegesis. And I've learned from him that you had a shift in your approach to exegesis. I learned from him that you were formally trained in higher criticism, but then you shifted to a more theological exegesis approach. Can you tell us about this shift and explain to our listeners the difference between the two? Yeah, it's, it's interesting what people see in you. That's undoubtedly true. You know, I'll give Mark credit for that. I think that any observer might well think that there's a kind of a way in which I started out a certain way and then and then moved in another way. I don't know that I think about it in exactly the same way myself. I was trained in historical critical methods. I think I always judge them to be servants and not good masters. I think uh, enable, they enabled you to answer the kinds of questions you are asking. Can we with any certainty know very much about Amos? Or what would it be like to imagine Ezekiel's audience, something like this? These are sort of stock and trade questions. Um, then again, I was blessed by a good teacher, Childs, who, I, I, when I teach students, I always say historical criticism is provisional, it is preliminary, and it is possible. That's about all it can do. What is not provisional, preliminary, or possible is the text as we have it before us. And I think that certain ways of asking questions can be constrained and helpfully reoriented when we come to terms with the book in the way it comes to us and the way it moves. Uh, This will come up in Ecclesiastes. I think there's a design and a movement to the book. Another example would be uh, critical and conservative interpreters wrestle over something like the Solomonic authorship of the book. But in a way, I don't I think both of those are narrow ways to think about what's going on in the book. There's clearly an evocation of Solomon, yet the word never appears in the book. And the ancient interpreters took that to be significant. They noted the absence. They noted the flirtation, the evocation, but they noted the absence. And they thought that was important to note. And in a way, that's what canonical reading does, it, it's, it pays attention to what's there and what's not there. And it tries to understand that. It doesn't try to correct it, put it in a sequence, describe it as due to layers of this, that, and the other. Uh, it, it wants to know what the peculiarities of the presentation are and what they might mean. Uh, and so that's partly something that I've always, that maybe goes back to my own literary training, uh, at Chapel Hill, I was a literature major. The text as it, uh, as itself was, was a sort of theme. Uh, if you want to know about King Lear, you read King Lear. You make note of the fact that King Lear emerges out of the second century BC and Shakespeare's writing in the 16th century, but nothing prevents him from creating a work with meaning and structure and intention. And, and that's what biblical, that's what inspired authors are doing. So there has been, I suppose, a bit of a shift. Though most of my publication has been on uh, the sense, the coherence of the final form of books, Isaiah, 
I, I did a commentary on Colossians, but I tried to read Colossians within the context of the letter collection as a whole. Where does it fall? Why is it there? What's going on? What about the neighbors? Is there something about the prison uh, correspondence that's made these books lumped together? Uh, those are the kind of questions that, that I have been interested in. And I also, I teach now mostly history of interpretation. That is so-called pre-modern interpretation, origin, didymus, uh, uh, the early Antiochian readers, Augustine, Cassiodorus, and then up to Calvin and Luther and so forth, Aquinas. And I think when you look at the range of interpretation, the things that they pay attention to, some of them pay attention to the sort of historical context of a book. The others immediately go to Jesus Christ. And there's probably a way in which one has to be sensitive to how, why both of those are both true at the same time. And I think that's sort of, that is Ecclesiastes is himself, but the father saw in him the great Ecclesiast, namely the one who gathered the nations from the ends of the earth. And there's a way in which he is who he is, and there's a way in which there's more there that will land on another shore. And I think coming to terms with that, that's because I think there was a marvelous image. I can't remember who used it. The Bible's like drinking out of a fountain. You don't drink it up. It keeps coming at you. You drink parts of it, but it keeps gushing and flowing. And therefore, it it's bigger than we are. And we ought to be humble before that. This isn't a kind of, uh, I'm, I'm in the breakers and I can't find my way. But we certainly shouldn't try to tame the waters or put them in. Uh, now I know what the answer is to this question. Amos lived in the seventh century, and these are the verses that belong to him and not the other ones and that kind of thing. Kristen mentioned at the top of the show that one of your recent books is called The Elder Testament, Canon Theology Trinity. So perhaps a related question while we're talking about canonical exegesis. What is that book about, and what's the significance of the main title, The Elder Testament? Well, you know, there has been, I suppose it's more of an academic discussion about whether or not calling the Old Testament the Old Testament is a good idea. And this comes from various angles. You might have a university context in which you want to be careful that you don't, that you have common ground with the Jewish audience, so you refer to the Bible as the Hebrew Bible. The problem there is that the old and new are constitutive of a covenantal relationship that's therefore, it, it it's hard to, negotiate these terms without creating a different kind of problem in its wake. First Testament, Second Testament, that was tried by a certain Roman Catholic in a certain Roman Catholic context. Well, what, what's the problem you're trying to solve when you do that? Part of it is, I suppose, that you don't want the Old Testament to simply have its voice sounded through the way the new hears it only. You would like it to retain its, its capacity to speak as Christian scripture, you're trying to guard its integrity, and you worry that old means outmoded, outdated. My old car, the old course is sexy because it's old and you want to go play golf there, but usually old connotates outmoded. And I noticed that living in France for four years, the French, I think, re relate differently to the past. They don't tear down statues. They had a revolution, and they did that once. They honor the past. They think about it as venerable. So the word in French, l'ancien testament, that, that it has a different evocation. It sounds like foundational, venerable. And I was trying to get a handle on what kind of an English word would, would, uh, would work for that. 
And I'm very clear in the book. I'm not. I don't want everyone running out and going, "Oh, let's have a reading from the Elder Testament." It's not. I'm not suggesting that we change Old Testament to Elder Testament. Try to make a kind of point. Elder on my ear, maybe that's going to not work for people. Suggest wisdom, tried and testedness, sagacity. Um, Deference. I, I'm, I'm happy with deference. I think deference is a good idea when it's the subject matter of, of Holy Scripture. So I was trying to provoke some thought about the matter by using the word. I've written a couple articles where I defend Old Testament against Hebrew Bible and First Testament and so forth. So I'm, I'm on record as, as, as happy to live with the terms to try to figure out why they sound impoverished to us. Was a time, I remember Jim Kugel at Yale used to say, was the worst thing you could say in the Middle Ages was, I have a new idea. Uh, and yet we live where my iPhone is on 11 and yours is a 12. And, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to run into a place where you have, you've lost the ability to think about the past as venerable. And uh, so I was, that's, that was partly what was going on in, in that. And that's a, the first chapter of that book. I'm just, tossing that out. I'm concerned with a number of things in the book. And ultimately, at the last section of that book, I try to look at some venerable interpretation. That is well, the way texts like Proverbs 8 once functioned to do Trinitarian theology. Even though Proverbs 8 is never cited in the New Testament, it ends up being the go-to text for the church fathers about begetting before time. Uh, this ends up being a very very rich text, and I'm curious as to why that's so. And a lot of my teaching today is along those lines. I, I tend to, we're reading Psalm 110 next week in my seminar, The Lord Said to My Lord, and how it is that that text has functioned down through the ages. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, at the, toward the end of my career, I would be happiest, I suppose, teaching history of biblical interpretation. I find it disorienting in ways that I think are spiritually valuable that make me think a little bit about what my presuppositions are. I'm also deeply, I, I'm not a, I'm not a Luddite, but I'm not a believer in progress particularly. You know, I think we're suffering a bit with, well, let's elect a president who can eliminate hurricanes or something. You know, I, I, there's a way in which I'd like to also maybe write a book on God is great. God is good. Something like that. But just, Try to get a sense of the majesty and mystery of God. Let's go to the divine speeches in Job. You know, uh, here's an animal you know nothing about. You've never seen it. Tell me how. Tell me how the rock badger lays its eggs. You know, whatever. These are the notes I think need to be sounded increasingly. We're getting eaten alive by scientism and distance from our natural selves. Uh, it would come for me. I've been living in France in the countryside, but I grew up in rural North Carolina, and I I still think there are a lot more lessons to be learned from stubbing your toe than learning to manipulate your iPhone. You've mentioned already a couple of times, Dr. Seitz, your teaching ministry and your um, love for the classroom. I wonder if you can tell us about your approach to teaching and what you think makes for a good educator today. I saw that question on the sheet, uh, and I have to say, you know, that's one of these trick questions in a way. You know, it's like I, I, 
Do I like to teach? I'm driven to teach. It's a vocation I was given. I find it really hard work. I find it, I want to be on top of things. I want my students to uh, get a sense of, of the urgency and energy of the, of, the, of the material. Those things are very important to me. I find them very hard work uh, in terms of preparation. You know, I used to have a 60-40 rule that when you lectured, you needed to know 60% of what you're going to talk about, and the other 40 needed to arise in the context of your giving a lecture. And as you get older, you might adjust that a bit. It could be 40, 60. But my hunch is that 60 is about as high. 60% of preparation is crucial because the other 40 is kind of combust given what's happening with the students. The look of mystification, the, ah, I don't get that, or, whoa, that's exciting. And you got to run with that when you get it because, you know, the job is to, is to, is to hopefully allow the word of God to catch fire, but through the crucible of the person who's in front of you, whose questions are really going to be rather different than your own. But I think it's romantic to think that I'm, I'm a big believer in the teacher having a view of something, but also being patient enough to, to entertain alternatives. But I'm not, I, I, that's what the 60% is about. It's about Having a having a, a, a having a firm set of convictions about what's going on, and bringing that to the bringing that to the classroom, but those are those are little little things that I, I suppose resonate in the question. I think teaching is harder than people think it is. I think good teaching is very hard. Uh, I also think that it has changed over my lifetime. Uh, I remember when they handed out computers at Yale and they said, we're firing all the secretaries and here's your computer. Well, you know, this machine will eat you alive and it's got 5,000 things that you can tap into every second. So, uh, you know, uh, bear with me, but I remember Charles is a very close friend of, of mine as well, had a colleague as well as my teacher, and he never went near the computer. He never went near it. And I tried to get him to to get on the computer so he could talk to his grandchildren. He could go down to the library and do email with them. He refused to do it. He had an Olivetti typewriter with a stuck key. He hand wrote his manuscripts. He made his own rubber bands. He then committed them to typewriter. He had a little auto. He didn't have an autocorrect on the typewriter. He had the whiteout and all that kind of thing. And there's a lot going on in that. You're not going to waste paper or time unless you've sort of formulated some things in your head. And he, it's not as though he would have been more productive with a computer. I think he understood that. He's more productive than I've been in my life. I try to catch him, but it's like a mechanical rabbit. But that didn't, there was something else going on. And he, I think he too would have said that that, I, I, I used to say about writing, and I think teaching is the same you need to go for long walks. You need time to process. And that you don't do that in front of a screen and you don't do it uh, pounding your head on the desk. You gotta get out and walk the dog and, and be startled by something that's coming to you just by virtue of letting go a bit. That's a, that's an Kohala theme, Ecclesiastes thing. Shut up for a while. See what comes up, see what stir is stirred up. 
Dr. Seitz, I feel that with you here on campus this week, we ought to offer a shout out to our Anglican students and alumni and friends. So could you tell our audience uh, what kind of Anglican are you, maybe first of all? And then secondly, what difference has your Anglicanism, your ordination in the Episcopal Church made in the way you do your work and interpret the Bible? Well, I, I mentioned that I grew up, my dad was a pastor, parish priest, and his father taught uh, liturgics and parish administration at Bexley Hall, an Episcopal seminary at Kenyon College. And so I, you know, I've known the Episcopal Church inside and out. I never really knew much about any other church. But I've only taught, Wycliffe is the only Anglican institution I've ever taught at, and half its students are garden variety evangelicals, all kinds, Mennonites, Christian Missionary Alliance, Korean Baptist, and, and all under the sun. And most of my graduate students are not Anglican because Anglicans, sadly, in my view, don't work well with the Bible. They're more interested in theology and liturgy and some other things. That's unfair in part, but fair in part. Maybe New Testament, Greek, but Old Testament, I wouldn't say, has been a book that had a lot of life and energy. Now, when I was growing up in the Episcopal Church, the lectionary, the means by which we heard Scripture on Sunday morning, had virtually no Old Testament in it. You heard a little servant song on, on Good Friday, and you heard, well, actually, they had a very rich uh, Good Friday. We went church for three hours on Good Friday, and we heard... All ye have passed by, have you seen any sorrow like unto my sorrow? So we heard Lamentations, we heard Second Isaiah, we heard all this stuff. And so I think probably the seed was planted in me that the Old Testament did have this rich, what I would call typological or figural way of identifying Jesus Christ out of its own words. That, in a way, it's always struck me, you don't have any of the servant song material of the passion narratives. Why is that? Well, it's because the confession is going on by those, oh, we, we esteemed him smitten by God, stricken. Well, those people aren't there at the cross. They fled. But that language is now available to the church to use, even though it's Old Testament. It might as well be New Testament, That's because that's the purpose for which whatever was going on in the bosom of Israel was preparing us for. But I learned those lessons outside of the Episcopal Church. I learned them, you know, through my through my academic career. Brilliant Lutherans. I taught with Lutherans when I first started teaching. And, you know, boy, that's a that's a tribe that really you got to bring your A game to that. Um, but my I, you know, I, other than the Episcopal Church, I've watched it really kind of fall apart. I don't want to sing the blues. I worked hard for 15 years to. Uh, as the president of the Anglican Communion Institute to try to identify the healthiest parts of the Anglican Communion globally. This was before the forming of ACNA and some of the the things that have happened in the wake of that, but also try to establish ecumenical relationships, Wesleyans, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox around the creed and commandments and the Lord's Prayer. And I spent a lot of time doing that uh, but I think the old line churches have really struggled. I mean, the, the the gay issue and other issues, authority of scripture have riven them. Other churches will have their own versions of, of fights and battles. Um, these have been ours. And I went to serve a parish in the Church of England in France. And so I have motored around the community a bit. I 
was in the Scottish Episcopal Church when I was in Scotland. Um, it, it sad, I mean, the state of affairs saddens me. You know, I, I don't think, I don't tend to look at the modern Episcopal Church and see the church in which I was raised. I suppose everybody feels that way about their own branch of, of this body. Uh, there have been some good things. I think the lectionary introduces us to more scripture on Sunday morning. On the other hand, it has introduced a challenge because the linkages are often figural or typological, and our training is not necessarily geared to sit down at that feast. Well, we tend to just look at the, the gospel reading for the day. So I don't, I don't want to – it has been the place where I have lived – I would say there are always mysteries, and a lot of a lot of Christianity is local. I mean, that, that that's that's just definitely true. We were living in rural France, and my wife was struggling with this these health issues, and the the local Catholic parish was outstanding. And I, I preached on the 500th anniversary of Luther at the big Lutheran church in Pennsylvania. One of my former students and I said, you know, I go to that church. In the lap is a booklet that helpfully lays out the lessons and makes some meditative suggestions. The laity are running everything. They're doing the catechesis, the pastoral care. They are providing the music. The clergy are short in short supply and are working too hard. It's their church. It's not the, it's not the priest's church. If he doesn't show up, they'll, they'll do, they'll do something on Sunday morning. They're there by conviction. Most of France is secular. So the Bible central to preaching is about Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, I think if Luther came back and said, ha, 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 I won. You know, <laughs> these are the things I fought for. But, of course, the Catholic Church is the Catholic Church, and it's going to be different wherever you go. And moreover, they were welcoming. You know, that's not necessarily anything that I have experienced elsewhere. I think there again, I think it was partly due to the fact that if you're a Christian in France, you are an oddity. You, you, you have made a decision that sets you apart from the culture. And if you want to go to the Catholic Church, you're going to be part of that odd group of people who claim to be Christians, and they're happy to have you. I'm also a little bit embarrassed, I think, by their mistreatment of Protestants over the years. So I've had a rich, you know, I taught at a Lutheran seminary. Yale was multi-denominational. St. Andrews was notionally Presbyterian. Most of my students are not Episcopalian. And I learn a lot from, you know, you learn a lot from just trying to listen in on what the cultural realities that they are. Most of our students, half of our students at Wycliffe are international students, Chinese, Korean, Southeast Asian, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, so Indian. But they've come to us, you know, they, they, haven't come, they, haven't, they haven't come to us and said, teach us about Indian Christianity. They want to know what's going on. That's why they've come to us. So there's no, there's no point in, in sort of dumbing that down. They want to know what the Western Christian tradition is about. And they, most of them know that through their own missionary uh, histories and so forth. So Dean Sweeney, I didn't really answer the question except, you know, I, I've, I've appreciated, have great affection. It'd be hard for me to leave the Episcopal Church. But I've also been blessed by God to not have to make that decision. You know, you know, Beeson has always been a great place, it seems to me, precisely to the degree it has said we want to we want to make sure this is a place where we, you know, we've got we're respecting the judicatories of the people who come to us, and we want as many of them as we can, and you know that's a good thing. 
Dr. Seitz, thank you for this conversation. We're almost done and out of time, but before we leave, um, we always like to end the show by hearing uh, what God is doing in your life, um, what he's teaching you and your devotional time with him. So I wonder if you can share something with our listeners that would really encourage them as to uh, something that God is teaching you these days. Well, he's trying to teach me. He's trying to teach me about this phase of life that I'm entering. Uh, that's that's called retirement, but but isn't somehow. There are going to be new rhythms in that, new 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 occasions, teaching new duties. So I'm li- I, I want to listen to see if I can get some clarity about that. Those are vocational questions. Personally. I'm in probably in a bit of recovery from the loss of my, my loss of my parents recently, loss of a very gifted priest in, in uh, France that was a very close and supportive man during my wife's ordeal. And just the proximity of death um, and, and, you know, adjusting to that, trying to make sense of it. My, you know, I my devotional life. I use a little thing called Let Us Pray in Church. It's in French, Prion en Église. And it's just a nice, it's like a, like many of these things, a lesson from the Old Testament, a lesson from the New Testament, the Psalms. I think if you just sit and let that stuff do its thing, see what, see what arises. So, you know, I think it's no one got a, I don't think anybody gets any kind of clear sheet ahead of time about the phases of life. And I'm in one where, you know, I'm going to need to begin letting go of things. And that's um, that's, <laughs> that's not something that comes naturally to men, I think, in, in particular, and, and women as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll be asking for all the help I can get. And uh, we're living in a, in a confusing time uh, church-wise, too. And so, you know, what to do, where to go. I wouldn't mind going back to France and being of service. Some kind. I got a lot out of that, and I love teaching um, the Jesuits. I was teaching in Paris, and uh, if the Lord says come back, I'd, I'd I'd go back. We hope this next season of your life is wonderful, uh, listeners. You have been listening to Dr. Christopher Seitz, senior research professor at Wycliffe College in Toronto. He has been at Beeson Divinity School this week, delivering our biblical studies lectures. And we are grateful for his gift of time today. Thank you very much, Dr. Seitz, for being with us. Thank you, audience, for tuning in. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.